Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you've just clicked the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? But don't worry, I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Sometimes life's challenges are presented not to those who choose them or to those who even deserve them. Sometimes life's challenges are presented to those who, before they even knew their own strength or even thought they could become someone who could, without a clue, stand firm in the face of the unknown with more questions than answers. But know that no matter what it might take, even against all odds, that there is no other option but to try. God chose these special few to teach us through their testimony that even if you can't extend your faith one day, one hour, or even one minute to the next, you still have everything you need in our Lord and Savior if you will just hold on. This is a story of faith, love, family, strength, perseverance, focus, determination, loyalty, and a measure of truth. Tyrone Corbett, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Michael, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us today. And I I guess first I ought to go ahead and let everyone know um, how we met and how this whole story came about. Um, we were actually working on a show that we we're probably going to do this Friday. And um, <laughs> we just had a conversation uh, about some things and about life getting to one, know one another. And you came up with a story that really just floored me. So um, first, let's tell people a little bit about your background first and then go right into that story for me, Tyrone. Sure. Well, my name is Tyrone Corbett. 
Uh, I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and I've been a musician my entire life. I was even a music major in college. And after getting married, my wife and I discussed, you know, wanting to further my career in entertainment. So, you know, the choices were, would we go East Coast or West Coast? And we decided to stay on the East Coast as we would be closer to family. Even though we were separating ourselves from both our families, we'd be closest, you know, on the East Coast. So that's how we wound up, you know, coming into the New York area. But you've had quite the background as well with um, your music experience, and um, just bring us up to date with a little bit of that in your your um, your music history up to the point where that really brings us to the story. Okay, well, again, I I came up because of music, and I had the great fortune of working with a number of really dynamic artists uh, from Will Downing, Gerald Albright. Um, a number of really heavy hitters in the smooth jazz R&B community. And actually, I was in the midst of creating my own record, um, as most artists do. You know, you go down that road, and all of a sudden I had probably the most incredible life change that could ever occur. Uh, um, And it, it, it certainly changed the trajectory of my career and my life in general. Um, Going back about 18 years ago, uh, my wife and I, you know, had a child. And unfortunately, he was born with a catastrophic brain illness. Um, And the circumstances became more and more unusual, uh, unusually odd as we took each step. Now, one of the things I shared about my coming from Richmond, Virginia, to the New York area, you know, it was very – it was an – an incredible circumstance to move here for music because little did I know it was probably the the first thing that set us on the path of being able to at least address saving my son's life. Now I want to go back a little bit in that I I said we were away from both of our families. Um, My son was born at a hospital actually in New Jersey and my wife had a healthy pregnancy. Um, Everything went really well. There wasn't anything that we had any concerns about. Um, In fact, most people ask when they hear of our story, they ask if my son was a premature, you know, or something like that. And Mm -hmm. he was actually late uh, in delivery. My wife, we had to go in and induce labor. Um, But it was a very, very healthy environment. Um, My wife and I, oddly enough, and I always joke about this, we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't even curse. You know, we always say that. (laughs) But it, it just happened that somehow... And I don't know all the science of it. Maybe genetically we unlocked uh, some doors. So I'm at the hospital, and, you know, my wife is in labor, and we're inducing labor. And when we go into the, you know, into the delivery room, uh, the first thing that happened was my wife started saying that she was having some difficulty breathing from, I guess, a too high of an epidural. And she, you know, was starting to struggle a bit uh, right as uh, we were about to deliver. Now, one of the odd things was they noticed that my son's heart rate dropped before we started the delivery. So as most most uh, families, you know, you want to do the typical, uh, what's considered the normal delivery, but we mm-hmm. were presented with the option of going forward with the cesarean uh, because they felt that, considering that the heart rate was rather high, which I was told wasn't even that unusual. However, it was safest, you know, to take that route. Um, So we're in the delivery room, and I noticed my wife is starting to struggle a bit. My son, they take him out. And I noticed right away that all you have to do in life is sort of watch, look at people and watch your circumstance. And I'm very acute to paying attention to what's going on around me. And I noticed that when they took my son out, they, the faces started to change, you know. Mm. And everyone, I think they were trying to be cautious in what they were saying around me, you know, not to alarm me. But, again, the faces were were an easy giveaway to me. So they, I noticed he wasn't breathing, you know, or didn't cry out. You know, that was a bit of a concern. Um, so anyway, they took him out and then they told me, I heard someone, I think it was the doctor, delivering doctor say, is he special or something to that 
um, nature. And, and I thought that that meant, you know, special in terms of there was some level of complication. I, I, I just could sense that. So they sort of whisked him away and then whisked my wife away, who's, you know, really out of it at this point. Now, mind you, I shared that, you know, we were sort of out of pocket. We weren't near my wife's family nor mine. And that's something, Michael, that continued to play out um, this entire scope of, of, of what we were dealing with because I'm in a hospital, I'm by myself, and I can see that my son is ill and my wife's not doing well. <laughs> so, mm. you know, what a strange circumstance. And wow. So it, it, immediately, you know, I'm just trying to get a handle on what's going on with my son, as well as looking over my shoulder about my wife. And they really weren't sure. A nurse came to me and said that, she said, you know, your son's heart looks great. And, you know, she went on and shared a few other things, but they just said that he wasn't breathing appropriately. That was the first thing in terms of diagnosis, if you will, though that's not a diagnosis exactly, they noticed he certainly wasn't breathing uh, correctly. So they put a halo over his head for oxygen. And then they, you know, so they told me his heart looked good. And I thought that was odd, but I said, okay, I guess that's checks and balances. Um, so through about an hour or so, you know, people kept coming to me saying that they couldn't figure out what was wrong, but they told me they were going to bring in a cardiologist. And I, I looked a little odd at that. And they said, well, his heart is enlarged. And I went, his heart is enlarged. Hmm. So, you know, it's, I'm trying to put this all together. Now, first the heart is fine. Now the heart is enlarged. Right, right. Um, so they bring in this cardiologist and very nice gentleman. And he looked at me and he said, you know, we can't quite figure out what's wrong, but oddly enough, I put the stethoscope on your son's head and I could hear this tremendous blood flow in his head. And he said, mm. I think your son has something. And he wrote it down. It was very difficult. He said to, to pronounce, he said, I think your son has something called cerebral arterial venous malformation. Now mm -hmm. what made this interesting, Michael is again, the, the circumstances of all these just sort of, little nuggets of things that happened coincidentally. No one in the hospital at that point had known what was going on with my son other than his heart was enlarging. And this cardiologist said he just happened two weeks prior to have attended this, um, what do you call it? Uh, he had attended, you know, uh, some sort of a, 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 a course or instruction, a seminar on mm -hmm. Dana Galen malformations. And I think he said he wasn't there for that seminar, but stuck his head in just to hear what was going on. So wow. he says, now I think this is what your son has. And oddly enough, you know, he's critical. He's deteriorating rapidly. Now he went from being healthy and just having some breathing issues to deteriorating really quickly. He said, well, you know, oddly enough, the neurosurgeon who treats this disorder happens to be in New York. He said, because there's nothing we can do in the hospital here, not, nothing at all. We are not even, you know, closely, you know, uh, ready to deal with something of this magnitude. Um, so now that's going through my head, and I had been checking back and forth between my son and my wife's room. So finally my wife is resting, you know, I think that this all started around like maybe 8 in the morning, and it was around 6 at night. By the when time, did she find you know, out? Well, around six or seven that evening is when she finally came around. And oh. oddly enough, I mean, by that point, you know, I was a wreck. I was emotionally mm -hmm. a wreck. I couldn't mm. believe that, you know, this was going on. I had to call family members. And, you know, as I call family members, you know, and this is payphone days. There are no cell phones, you know. Um, but they were saying, you know, what's going on? What's wrong? And I had to repeatedly Initially, Telestrat said, I don't know what's wrong other than he's not well. Um, so the cardiologist said, you know, do you need some help? I can help you discuss this with your wife um, to share with her. And I said, well, sure. And, and you know, Michael, it's, it's really interesting. A lot had gone on. I Emotionally, I, I was really, again, I, I was a train wreck, and I cried so much, quite honestly, you know, learning that, you know, he was, you know, deteriorate, uh, deteriorating in health right before mm -hmm. me. 
And so when I went in and I, I told the doctor, I said, well, you know, yeah, I will need your help, you know, sharing it with my wife. And I remember my greatest, you know, anxiety at that point was I did not want to break that news to my wife. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. you know, my life had already taken the turn and I'm yeah, aware and of the taking information. The turn, can I just interject and say, Tyrone, first of all, when you have the birth of a child, you are almost ready to be enthusiastic, excited and happy. And to have Absolutely. something come and replace that emotion that is totally the opposite, man, that can really shut you down. Oh, absolutely. And so I was spiraling down, and then I was really, again, upset to have to share this news with my wife, who who knows nothing because, again, she was struggling a bit herself that day. But she's mm-hmm. stable at this point, and she, they, she had a lot of medication on board. So she was actually not completely coherent, but... Again, oddly enough, my wife happens to be a nurse. So the first thing, and I remember this, Michael, as if it were yesterday. I I remember going into her room and, you know, I was trying to cover my face and not let her see that, you know, I had been crying so much because I knew my eyes were, you know, blood red. And, you know, so the first thing, and she was a bit incoherent. She's just coming around. And the first thing she did was she said, what's the matter with your eyes, baby? Are you Okay. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I said, you know, just along, they just fine, you know, not even knowing how to, you know, break that news. So eventually, you know, the cardiologist and I both said, you know, he, he started it off. And he said, well, you know, your son, there's a, a bit of a concern. And my wife said, okay. And she's very, my wife is very calm and resolute anyway. And what was funny, Michael, if you can use the term funny, but she was repeating things because she was coming off of a lot of medication. However, mm-hmm. she was asking all the right questions. You know, I mm-hmm. think the nurse part kicked in. And so when, you know, he explained that Kevin had this thing that he thought was called arterial venous malformation, she just went into nurse mode. And she said, okay, well, what do we need to do? And he said, well, you know, if we can get him stable, we need to get him to New York. Uh, we just don't think we can get him stable enough to even travel. Um, so that was our next big thing. But the next morning, we, we were fortunate enough, they called an ambulance, and they, we transferred him um, from New Jersey to New York uh, to meet with this doctor, Dr. Berenstein. Now, what was interesting for me here is I'm still trying to get a grip on what's going on with my son what is this disorder? You know, I called my family, you know, they were coming up in the middle of the night from Virginia and they were with me that day. So when we got to the hospital in New York, Michael, I I think they said the neurosurgeon was in a a procedure. And he said, they told me, they said, he'll be about, he may be eight or 10 hours, but Mm. he wants to speak with you personally. And, you know, my family, we all looked at each other and, you know, it's sort of like, you're looking like, well, that's not good news. You know, it just doesn't feel that way. And so the neurosurgeon came in about 10 hours later. And you got to imagine what a long day. You know, my wife is yeah. in the hospital in New Jersey, and now I'm in New York with my son. And he confirms it. He says, you know, Daddy, your son has something called cerebral arterial venous malformation. In short, they call it an AVM. And he's a, he's very, you know, direct, and he's really good about the information, he looked at me and he said, well, he said, it's in something called the vein of Galen. And I said, well, what's the vein of Galen? And he said, well, unfortunately, you know, AVMs are rare, but your son happens to have it in the most eloquent area of his brain. So, you know, again, the information is just not good. So I'm, I'm going, okay, what can we do about this? Or is there anything we can do? And he said, well, you know, we, there are procedures. They're non-FDA approved, um, which, you know, if you know anything about that, usually there are lots of limitations. But I was told it was the opposite. I was told due to the fact of the severity of my son's illness that they, you know, they would allow us to do anything necessary to try to save his life, if you will. Paraphrase. Wow. So, you know, of course, that news was devastating to me. And, you know, I went home that night, uh, made sure my son was stable, got my wife. And my wife, man, you're talking about strength, Michael. She had had a C-section 
a couple mm-hmm. of days after having the C-section, you know, you couldn't keep her away from her child. I, I got her out of the hospital. In, in truth, and being straightforward, she's bleeding because she shouldn't be moving with the C-section. But right. I have her en route going to New York, um, mm. you know, to be with our son. And, you know, again, her being a nurse really helped. But what I did was I started calling around the country. That was the first thing to say, you know, okay, I found out my son has this incredible illness. And, you know, I just I wanted to know where I, he needed to be. Um, even though I was told about this neurosurgeon in New York, I said, you know, where do I need to be? So inevitably I called L.A., I called, I think, Chicago. I, I found some leeway. I wound up calling France. And they said that they said, well, who has your son? And I said, well, it's this guy. I couldn't pronounce his name well, Mike. I said, Alejandro Bernstein. What an odd name to me. And someone asked me, they said, Alex has him? And I said, pardon Alejandro. They said, yes, that's Alex Bernstein. They said, if Alex has your son, you are in the best hands, period. There is nowhere for him to go. He is the penultimate. And I'm hearing that, but you're, you know, you're questioning things. But as I learned as we move forward, Dr. Bernstein, you know, because there are many best, Michael. Let me say that. Mm, mm-hmm. When people say the best, there are many best in the world. It's a bit different with him because he actually invented the tech and owns the patent um, mm. of how this is done. So he was the best. So that was the first thing for me that when I had a chance to process things a bit, to say, wait a minute, we moved from Virginia to be near New York for my career. But I just happened to be with the number one person in the world who can save my son. I thought mm-hmm. that was, you know, what a heck of yeah. a coincidence. Yeah. And as I learned further, I mean, the news just, to be honest with you, Michael, continued to, to be bad. Uh, Dr. Bernstein mm-hmm. went on to tell me and looking at things, he said, well, not only does your son have this catastrophic illness, he said, I have to be honest with you, Daddy. He's the worst case I've ever seen. Oh, wow. And, you know, I'm going, so now you're telling me I'm the rare amongst the rare? And he said, indeed. He said, well, I'll I'll be honest with you. He says, brain looks good, but it's a small baby, and I I don't know. He said, but in truth, if I did see damage, I would recommend you let him go. There was a great deal of discussion as to if we wanted Mm. to let him go. Wow. Or to keep him now. You got to think, Michael, again, this is your child, newborn, mm-hmm. and I'm being faced with this question of do I want to let my son go? And I'm trying to process it. I'm trying to go into the mode of what is the best thing for our family and for our son. I didn't want to see him in pain, you know, so what do I do? And I looked at the doctor and I said, well, is there a possibility that we can try? And he said, sure. He said, because I think the brain you know, from what I can see, it's not bad. And I said, well, what do we do to fix it? Now, Michael, here here comes, you know, you're talking about raining on a parade. He says, well, it's going to be about a 12 to 14-hour procedure. We go in, and he said, basically, I'm threading hairs in your son's brain. Mm. And I'm going, you know, I'm trying to process that. And I said, well, can you explain to me what this AVM is? And, you know, ultimately, it's an entanglement of veins, in the brain, the uh, veins and arteries. So I started asking questions, and maybe, Michael, I was asking too many questions. Um, I said to him, I, I, was, I was asking the team, I said, how many of these bad veins are in his brain? You know, and no one sort of wanted to quantify it, and, but I'm pushing because I'm just trying to wrap my brain around this thing. And they say, well, someone said, well, potentially thousands. Wow. So I'm going, okay, all right. So, you know, that's a big blow. But then I say, okay, well, how many are we planning on getting in this procedure? And no one wants to answer that question. And finally, I I keep pushing and someone says, well, if we can get one or two, it's a good day. Three or four, it's incredible. Mm. You know, now I'm, I'm basically, you know, I'm looking at this thing going, wait a minute, thousands of bad veins, and they're going in to get one or two. So, you know, hmm. the the negatives are mounting. And, and I, I'm sitting back, and as we go in, the, the goal was to do the first procedure on Kevin 
at about a year to two years old because they, as it, as it was explained to me, small babies, small veins. So unfortunately, Kevin continued to deteriorate. They thought they could stabilize him. So at six days old, they said, we have to go ahead and do a brain procedure. Wow. And, you know, we just, and, and they told us, like I say, it was non-FDA approved, and it was something they used called super glue, and they were going to go in and glue these, try to glue a couple of bad veins. Um, and then it was shared with us the, you know, the the possible negatives of the procedure. And, and this is, Michael, again, what these things continue to throw me, because usually if you can survive, you know, a horrible circumstance, you know, if you can survive it, even though it's very difficult, you move on. What they told me was the procedure would actually, would likely cause blindness, paralysis, mental retardation, and or death. And they said, we have to be honest, this is what you're dealing with. And mm -hmm. I said, okay. And they said that it would likely be 12 to 14 hours. I think it was about 16 hours on the first procedure. And here's the kicker. They say, well, unfortunately, you know, due to him having so many of these veins, he will have to have it repeatedly. We we may need to do it every year or two. And he will need to likely have this procedure done to him for the duration of his life. Mm -hmm. Brain so surgery. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm over trying to and over and over again. Mm. You know, paralysis, blindness, mental retardation, and or death, each time they do this, and he will likely need it for life. So we go in, he survives the first procedure, and, you know, everyone's ecstatic in the hospital. It's a very big deal everywhere. And unfortunately, he started to deteriorate after a few days. And so at one month old, I'm going to move it along. At one month old, they came to me and told me that, they would have to give him a trach and a feeding tube. Mm. For me, Michael, this was honestly worse news, more devastating than the brain illness, which was obviously bigger, but I couldn't fathom cutting my son's throat mm -hmm. and stomach and doing that. It, right. it, it, it right. was the most horrific thing to even consider. And also there was a bit of a selfish thing. You know, I'm a singer and, one of my things was I always envisioned teaching my son how to sing. And, you know, I'm looking at, you know, not only, you know, is he not well, but it's even taken away the core, you know, even the simple things of just the joys of it. And, you know, but my wife and I looked at each other, and she assured me more so, being a nurse, she said, well, you know, baby, it's terrific. We, I know. She said, but lots of babies have had them, and he can survive it. And, Unfortunately, Michael, he had the surgery for the, to get the trach and feeding tube, and somehow they told us they cut the incision too big in his throat. So that became a problem, um, and mm. he barely made it through that procedure. Then a month later, even though they told us no more brain procedures, hopefully for two years, they told us they needed to do yet another one uh, about two months later. Ultimately, Kevin underwent four brain procedures, his first year of life culminating mm. with open heart surgery on his first birthday. Wow. And you know, what you're going to have something at, at this point, I guess we have to let people know that your son is still with us. Correct. Yeah. Well, that, yes. that, that's Which the, is the major thing. Cause I know yeah. people are on pins and needles just like I was for, for so long just hearing this story, but go ahead and continue and um, help us to understand, you know, what you guys still had to go through and what you were able to resolve um, in this process. Sure. Well, one of the things, in, in, in speaking of the negatives and, and the difficulties of that, and I think you touched on it said in the beginning, you know, having your child is the most joyous time of your life. And I think we everyone agrees that you never want to see your child ill. You know, you accept that as adults we go through things, but you never want to see that for your child. And unfortunately, along our journey, we nearly lost Kevin hundreds of times. And I think, Michael, to see your child die nearly once is a life-altering circumstance. Um, but it's 
we lived it repeatedly. We watched mm. it repeatedly. Mm. My wife and I would stay at the hospital for days on end at a time and then go home to finally get some sleep and then get a call before we got home and telling us he's not going to make it. You guys need to rush back here. So we had to continue that process. That went on for years. And what's unfortunate is while you're dealing, Michael, with a catastrophic situation, life doesn't stop. The mortgage still has to be paid, you Mm -hmm. know, bills. So, of course, everything was falling apart around us. Um, I did not work for about six months. Um, You know, in fact, I I didn't want to go back to work. I felt that was one of the more horrific things I had to deal with, knowing that my son could die at any moment. But I have to somehow reconcile that I have to go to work. You know, it doesn't add up, Mm -hmm. you know. But the great fortune at the time was I was doing some work in New York. So I was in the city, and I was able to work there and, you know, on my lunch break, you know, go see my son. And, you know, I sort of had to make a pledge with my wife to say that, you know, and and this is just the real stuff of it, Michael. I had to Mm -hmm. say, if you feel he's dying, if you feel we're losing him, I need you to not quote that. Let me know because I want to be there. You know, right, um, because right. again, you, you don't want to have to, you know, again, go to work at all, but you have to. So speaking the story up further, we spent years of these brain procedures, all of the negatives of trying to figure out if he can survive the procedure. What is the procedure doing to his brain? And we went through one horrific ordeal, Michael, after the next. I mean, they did something they called super glue that they put in the, uh, his brain, and then they told us they were going to put platinum coils in the arteries of his brain, which in the middle of the surgery slipped away from the doctor's tool, and now there's a red alert in the entire hospital because these platinum coils are floating around in my son's brain, so to speak, and they can't put them where they belong, period. They cannot put put them where they belong, and they cannot take them out. And so this is just one of the ordeals we were dealing with. In the end, they mm. wound up what they call parking uh, the coils in an area that they felt would be safe. They couldn't get them to go where they were supposed to go. But we went through ordeal like this repeatedly. And again, all while, Michael, not having any family support. Now, what I don't mean is that we didn't have great family members. Sure, right. everyone came right. when they could, but you got to think when you're, you know, out of state, everyone works and everyone has to maintain a job. So my wife and I, we would look at all the families who were doing, you know, around the clock vigils and shift taking, and we never had that. My wife and I, you know, literally pretty much single-handedly spent those living around the hospital, I mean, living around in the hospital around the clock. Um, But what has been most incredible is this coming Monday, no less, my son is graduating from high school. And Mm, it is the most incredible thing that I could ever, in fact, I could not fathom it, Michael. I could not see it happening um, because they even told us that most children did not live through their teens. Um, that they that they were able to get to that point, and considering that they were saying that Kevin, you know, was the worst case. And by the way, 18 years later, Michael, they still say he's the worst case in the world. Still, he is the standard by which they measure all other mm. cases. But wow. the beauty is, my, I had a prayer, Michael. When you mentioned mm-hmm. faith, my prayer was I had to, I had to almost become resolute that I would lose my son. Just being honest and realistic about it. The odds were, you know, against us in ways that, you know, you can't even quantify. But what I did pray to God for was that they would learn something from him to help other children who would, you know, come behind him. And we had an appointment with the neurosurgeon about a year ago now. And, Michael, the first thing he says to me is, Daddy, I'm saving children every day because of Kevin. Mm, and wow, that wow. touched me in such an incredible way. And we did. They they pushed the limits, Michael, with him. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. There were people in the hospital who were not pleased with that because they felt as though there were too many liberties being taken and that maybe we should have 
you know, peacefully let Kevin transition. And, you know, he shouldn't be a guinea pig, so to speak. I never felt like that. I, I did understand that we were doing some exploratory stuff. I did understand that they were pushing the boundaries. But, again, my feeling was, you know, if this is what we have before us, if they can learn something from our child, and my wife and I agree, then his life would be worthwhile. And so we were willing to take some of those risks. I'll never put it on a neurosurgeon. We we were a team, and we still are a team, 18 years later. Tell us a little bit about Kevin, just as well, your son. Such a he he's an amazing young man. I'm you know when when someone tells you that your child will not walk or talk, um, and you know will likely be severely mentally handicapped, you know you're again seeing your life just fall apart. But as we went through each stage, somehow Kevin not only maintained but he thrived. And mm. my wife, being a nurse, I can't say enough about her because. Literally, even though she was unaware of his illness, Michael, just her due diligence mm-hmm. of catching things that a normal parent, even a very loving and caring parent, uh, couldn't catch, you know, helped us move forward. So Kevin is actually an honor roll student. Um, he does have some, you know, some, some uh, he has a disability in some areas, but in all truth, he lets us know every day that he is very capable. And he has been very independent. And, again, he's an honor roll student and a wonderful young man. And give you one more thing to boot, after all those years of the trach and the feeding tube, Kevin sings like a bird. Oh, wow. So to think, (laughs) you know, that that was one of my things that I'd even had to give up that dream. Mm. And as they say, a dream deferred. It was Mm -hmm. indeed deferred, but... Here he is today, a handsome, great young man. Um, all of his instructors say they've never seen a more polite young man. I think that's a bit of our southern <laughs> rearing because, <laughs> you know, we have that yes, ma'am, no, ma'am thing going on. Um, right. But he's a really fine young man, despite having been dealt, I think, the most unusually difficult hand that any you know person could ever deal with dealing with a catastrophic illness. Hmm, that's amazing. Amazing story. And for you to have been able to get most of the things that you were told would not be in the future for you and your son and your family, it's just an amazing to be able to, you know, even in the midst of this, you have your points of light. You have all these blessings that you can truly, truly appreciate, even in the midst of what you're going through? Well, without question, and, and, you know, I want to touch on something, Michael. I remember, you know, listening to some people, even some friends of mine had said when they, you know, when they heard the story and understood it and said, well, you know, why would someone say that he wouldn't be able to do this? And they were negative. And the one thing I always am very cautious about in sharing and, and very direct about is, no, they weren't being negative. They were dealing with the information as it was before them. You know, this was indeed a catastrophic circumstances. Everyone's overwhelmed that Kevin is here. Now, the neurosurgeon says, without reservation, he said to me, he said, Daddy, your son is here because of you. He said, I've mm-hmm. never met someone like you in my life. And when I was ready to give up, you and your wife and the way you all stood steadfast, you know, allowed me to go forward. And, Mike, I want to share with you one other story that I felt was very important and very poignant in all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, During this entire ordeal, my wife and I never uh, asked him to save our child. And and we saw parents do it repeatedly. And the reason Mm. we didn't was because we felt as though all that does is put pressure where pressure isn't needed. Um, you know, as you, you know, a doctor is going to do everything he can do. In fact, I looked at it in reverse, Michael. I looked at it as, here is my circumstance. It is the worst case scenario. This is the hand that I was dealt, and I can deal with that, if you will. But what I felt was unfair was that this doctor would have to take my son in, 
knowing, because we it was explained to us, knowing that he would likely lose him on the table, but and he has to come to us as a doctor and tell any parent, I lost your child. Mm-hmm. I felt that was unfair. And, and some of my friends said, well, what an incredible way for you to process that. How could you process that knowing that it's your child? I said, but, you know, it just wasn't right. And so I was more sensitive about looking at him saying, the last thing I want to do, Michael, is put pressure on him. You know, even though my heart is, is crying out, save my child, I would mm-hmm. never say that to him because I just felt like it would cause, likely cause a level of stress, which, you know, would take its toll in, in the emergency room. And these are all the things that I think is the reasons, rather, why my son is here. I think we were able to be a, a strong unit, my wife and I, and I don't say this with any arrogance, by the way. You know, it's by the grace of God that we've been able to hold it all together. But I think we were a very unique team. I think we mm-hmm. happened to meet a unique doctor. And, you know, as horrific as was the circumstance of the illness, it seemed like, again, my moving from Virginia to here and being 20 miles from this neurosurgeon who saves my son's life, had we been any father, Michael, any father, Kevin would have expired. So there are Mm. all these coincidences, if you will, um, you know, and the point is you mentioned how you survive and how you thrive. I'll be honest, Michael, if you had told me six months before my son was born that this would happen and that I could live through it, I would have told you there is no way. There is no way humanly possible. And in all honesty, the road was dark, and, Michael, it was ugly. We saw a lot of other children die along the way. It was the, it was the circumstance we lived in. We fought mm-hmm. for Kevin's life every single day, you know, through like five or six years. I mean, oh, you know, we, came, we were in hospital for two years, I think 24-hour nursing for two more years. So we, we kind of saw it, saw it all, but through it all, we remain a steadfast team and a union. And I think there's something to be said about also picking a good mate because I got it right. If I did nothing right. right Absolutely. That's the one thing that I will be arrogant about. I will brag about. (laughs) I picked the right spouse and my wife, in all honesty, she has carried me many times. I've carried her, but she's equally carried me many times because there's no way that you can go through such a crisis unscathed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it it emotionally tore us up and financially. I mean, millions of dollars mm-hmm. yeah. in medical costs. And, you know, so when you say survival, it, it is a true story of survival in, in, in the most incredible way. Yeah. And, and you made a really good point because there are situations like this that break up marriages every day. If it's not even just the child, it's just one of, you know, the couple would get sick and then the other person just can't handle it. They don't see their role. They don't understand how to handle things not being the way they were. And you guys have gone through a lot of changes and saw um, you had to make the best out of everything. There was no light at the end of the tunnel except mm-hmm. for another day with your son. And you guys Correct. somehow embraced that and made that the mission. And um, you, you know, you said something, Michael, that's really poignant to me. It made me think of one of the things, and I haven't said this in a while to my wife, but when you said living day to day, and I remember telling my wife, it hit me one day about, Eight or nine months in, I said, you know what, baby, we always share these cliches and we say things in passing. And, for instance, we go, how you doing? Oh, I'm just taking it one day at a time. And we throw it away, and it finally hit me. I said, whomever Mm. came up with that saying when they said they were taking it one day at a time, they were going through something. You know, we say it, it casually, but obviously taking it one day at a time for us, Mm-hmm. became our mantra. I mean, we only had Michael that moment. And, and just to share something else, I remember they sent a, a a psychologist to talk to my wife and I, um, because once, 
you know, we could all see that if we were fortunate, it would be a long-term situation. And the doctor did tell me, he said, Daddy, he said, when you talk about saving the baby, I want to tell you something. Everyone's going to say save the baby because that's your instinct. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. He said, but what you can, what you think you can handle now, when you see that 10 years from now, you're still going through it. That's what the difference is. And sure enough, obviously, we, you know, I remember him telling me that at Kevin being like two or three days old. And sure enough, thank God we've superseded the the 10 days. I mean, the 10 years and to 18 years. But that is a part of what we've dealt with. You're always looking over your shoulder. You're dealing with this crisis. But they did send a psychologist in to talk to us and it was a very nice lady, Michael, and I have to tell you, she would see us in the hallways, and every day, she, you know, she'd give us that, you know, that really, that really polite, sad, polite smile, saying, you know, I'm with you, and you know, it, it was wonderfully endearing. But at some point, it began to wear on my wife and I, and so she came in one afternoon into my son's room, and she said, you know, I'd like to talk to you all, you know, because marriages don't work, and I mean, or they can fall apart. You know, she was just being honest and and talking and wanting to assist us, but I had finally, Michael, I think I'd had enough. I I just, I think I was feeling overwhelmed, and I finally looked at her today, and I said, ma'am, I said, we're fine, and of course, by me saying we're fine. She gave me that look that said, if you're saying you're fine, my dear child, you can't be, you know, because you can't (laughs) go through this. But what I did was I looked at her and I said, I wish every day, every hour, every minute and every second that my son was not ill, but he is. I said, so when I tell you we're okay, it's not that we don't realize that we're not, that we're dealing with, you know, some incredible circumstances and odds. But what we're saying is we're recognizing that we have to stay resolute in this. Like, Michael, we made a, a, a vow that we said, you know, if you need to cry, and my wife and I did a lot, you don't cry in his room. That's not mm. an energy that we wanted mm. to bring in. And right. feel you're losing it. And, man, there was a lot. Mm-hmm. Try to remove yourself. We played mm. Vivaldi, Mike, and, and, and they were looking at us, Early on, very strangely, um, they even called my wife one day and told her they needed to have a meeting. And she said, let me get my husband. And she said, well, we need to talk to you. And she said, the the thing we want to meet with you about is we're concerned about your husband. And she said, why? She said, he comes in. I mean, they say he come in, comes in every day. He's happy. You know, he's speaking. Hey, how are you? He's talking to everyone. Does he really understand the levity of this circumstance. And my wife looked at him. She said, you know, if you get to know us, you'll find that that's who my husband is. And my perspective, Michael, has always been that my cup was three-quarters full. There was never a question of half or empty. Mm -hmm. It's always been three-quarters full. And Mm -hmm. so I also knew and I recognized that I needed every member of that staff you're just telling me all these staggering odds. So mm-hmm. I needed, I need this team. So I knew what my role was, Michael. My role was to cheerlead. I understood that. So when I came right. speaking, I wanted to make sure that I got the best out of everybody so they could give the best to my son. Yeah. There you have it. There's another transference there. And And you spoke a lot about your relationships with your doctors and the people who were also caring and how you sheltered him from the pain that you guys were experiencing and looked forward to pushing the energy towards him being well, you know, that that's really brilliant. And, um, and that's one of the things that I can see and point out to that you guys did a very good job at. You thought this thing through at a level that most people would not. And first of all, it, it's, it's amazing that both you and your wife are still healthy going through all of this. And that's both physically and mentally. But to also be so attuned to the situation, to be able to make the best of it and make so many great choices to help your son to to be able to get better. Well, we certainly put everything in it that we possibly could. 
Now, I, I will share with you, because, again, there's so many wonderful things have happened, but there's a lot of pain associated. There was a lot of, you know, difficulties. And I think, Michael, if you would ask me what my lowest point was, and, you know, there, there were so many, in, in truth. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. you just can't fathom your, your child being ill and then telling you that he has a rare brain illness and then saying he's worse in the world and then telling you that the repair will likely kill him. You know, it's this is just mounting. But I, I promised myself, in, in truth, I promised myself that if it came to a point where I needed to let him go, I could do that. Mm. And because I didn't want to see him in pain, that that was my barometer. I said, you know, as much as I want him here, I will not allow him to go through pain. And then I began to question at one point. I said, well, he's going through a lot of pain. And it all came hitting me like a ton of bricks, bricks, Michael, when we had his open heart surgery. And like I said, that fell about somewhere near right before, just after his very first birthday. And I remember they had him in a comatose state and I looked at him and they had, you know, they had cracked the chest open to, you know, do the open heart surgery. I looked at the trach in his throat, the feeding tube, and he had developed these bed sores in the back of his head, you know, because of just the way he was positioned. And I just remember at that point, Michael, that that was, I think, of the many lows. I think that had to have been one of the greatest because at some point I said, my God, I'm cutting up my baby. Mm. You know, and even though I'm trying to do this to save his life, mm-hmm. you know, what am I doing? And oddly enough, would you believe that was our biggest turn of the corner? So there's something, again, when they say the darkest day usually is there's something around the corner. And sure enough, because that was my darkest moment. And, mm. Kevin, after having the open heart surgery, that's when we actually got him to the most stable point where he was not in at least an hour-by-hour hour jeopardy. So, again, moving forward, he has sustained all of this. You know, while I think right. what my wife and I have gone through, he's had to sustain it. And mm-hmm. you know, eighteen years later, we're we're still we're still seeing doctors, and but but we're making it, Michael. And I often tell friends who are going through you know similar tragedies, and most of my friends say, "Well, we still haven't been through anything even remotely close to what you guys have faced." My point is, it, it doesn't have to be that. We're all at some point, you know challenged by something in life. And one thing that I would like people to take away from our story is it's not that everything is always going to work out in your favor because it doesn't always. That's just a fact. We've been fortunate. Mm -hmm. But what I want people to know is that when you are at your darkest place and you think there is no hope, look at us and see that there can be hope. And just hold on. I know that if my wife and I had a different perspective, and that's what the neurosurgeon was saying, that even though he's there to do his job and, you know, it was us when he felt he couldn't go any further, that we were able to to carry him a bit. So Mm. if there's something about our story that I feel should resonate, it is the fact that although I was terrified, I was afraid, I was hurting, I never gave up. My wife never gave up. And I think that's the strength of our story. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and your partnership as well and uh, the team effort. And, um, you know, it, it's just an amazing story. Uh, you see the strength of your whole family. And, um, you know, for you guys to go through this and to, to be who you are and not be bitter, hurt, or damaged by it, but it seems to me that you're stronger, you know, based on what you've gone through. It's just amazing. I would say to a degree, I mean, you know, you, the one thing that I share with my wife is you don't go through this and not be unscathed. Now that's just, you know, not realistic. However, Mm -hmm. I, I do think that having a strong union, as we both said, has allowed us to sort of weather the storm. In fact, Michael, one of my friends, I was telling him, I said, it's raining so bad. And he said to me, he said, Ty, have have you prayed to God to stop the rain? And I've always been a practical person, Michael. I just Mm. said to him, well, 
I don't think that praying to God to stop the rain is realistic. But what I do pray to God for is a bigger umbrella to help shield us from the storm. Mm -hmm. The rain is going to fall. That's a part of life. But if he can Mm -hmm. just give us a little more shelter, just cover us a bit so that we can make it, then that's, you know, that's what we'll do. And, and again, that sort of my, is my practicality of, of just how I see things personally. And, you know, so it, 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 our story is a bunch of little stories of survival, of strength, of what not giving up does. Michael, I have people now contacting me from all over the world who say that they found Kevin's story because we were very private for many years. We didn't put anything out there. It was for many reasons. But we decided when he turned 16 that it was really time we wanted to share the information with other people who were going through our circumstance. And so many people reached out and said, it's because of Kevin that, you know, we feel that our child can make it. You've given us so much strength. Families have said they've adopted Kevin um, as their child's big brother uh, Mm because he's considered an elder statesman in this. But Mm -hmm. for me, Michael, that makes it all worthwhile, knowing that literally people saying we found the neurosurgeon because of your son, or we were uncertain until we saw your son's story that we've traveled from Australia. You know, we've traveled from Europe. I mean, it's it's really an incredible circumstance. Wow. Well, hopefully next time maybe we could get one of the doctors on with you as well because I definitely want to revisit this story. Um, I feel like there's so much you haven't told us, even though you you gave us quite a bit to chew on. But um, th- there's so many nuances to um, all of this, and um, we we look forward to keeping in contact with you and finding you know out how Kevin is doing down the road as well. So I, I really really appreciate you coming on Tyrone and, and sharing this wonderful amazing story with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me. And again, if by sharing what our challenges have been and are, if they can help anyone, then that's the purpose of it all. Oh, very good. Um, And I I posted some information um, on my Facebook page for anyone who wants to go to the Mayo Clinic page and find out a little bit more about this as well. And, uh, again, we will revisit this, I believe, in the future. Thank you again, Tyrone, and we hope to speak with you real soon. You got it, Michael. Thanks. Well, we just come to the end of another amazing show. Special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth. Before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you. If I may paraphrase Stephen King, the most important things are the hardest things to say. These are the things you feel ashamed of because mere words only diminish the thought. You see, words shrink things that seem limitless when they were in our hearts and minds to no more than just living size when brought out into the open. Oh, but it's more than that, isn't it? You see, the most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried. Like landmarks to a treasurer, your enemies would love to steal away and use against you at the worst possible moment. But still, you make revelations that cost you dearly, only to have people look at you like you're crazy not understanding what you've said at all or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried when you were saying it. Do you know what's even worse than that? 
is when the secret stays locked within and you can't get it out. Not for want of the courage to talk about it, but for want of someone who will just listen. Just listen. As someone who spends a great deal of time searching for the truth, the lesson that I've learned from this quote is, if you want the truth, you have to be prepared to release all judgment and be open enough to hear and accept the truth in whatever form it might take. Judgment alters the truth by changing how it's told or presented. Not accepting the truth stops the bearer from sharing the truth. Ignoring the truth kills ambition and is a recipe for disaster and makes success impossible. We all over the years have learned to guard ourselves against deception, but I've also come to realize that in most cases, you don't even have to discover or discern the truth. You just have to let it be and see it for what it is. Maybe you have a story too. It doesn't have to be just like the one we've heard. Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm here, and I'm willing to listen. All I ask from you is a measure of truth.